Welcome to What Do You Know About? My name is Ash, and I will be your tour guide through the lesser-known stories of history. You can join us on your favorite podcast app, or come have a conversation on our Instagram at WDKA Podcast. But first, hold on tight, because we're about to go down a historical rabbit hole with today's episode. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. It's a new week and we are back with more dark stories. Welcome, folks, to Tales of Murder by Poison and the Angel of Death Phenomenon. Since we have a lot to cover, no surprise, shall we get straight to our fun facts that we found during our research? Yes. All right. I'm going to go all the way back to our ancient Romans for my fun fact and talk very briefly about the first female serial killer in ancient Rome. (laughs) So her name is Locusta. She died in the year 69 and is possibly actually the first documented female serial killer ever like 69 ad yeah okay she is considered to be the person who agrippina the younger contacted for the poison to kill claudius and she also supplied the poison used to kill britannicus as well well then there so like i had almost thought that lady bathory was like one of like the first female serial killers but turns out but i think she's actually the I think she's like the female, like she's definitely the one with the most kills on her yeah. her belt. But yeah, so I, I thought it was kind of interesting because I'm like this, like, this woman had her hand in two basically emperors just going. <laughs> yeah, that's some high end clientele. <laughs> she is really interesting to like interesting to talk about, but I'm going to focus my part of today's history lesson on one specific area of the world that isn't Rome. Wow. Well, my fun fact, I'm going to be talking about the Angel of Death phenomenon. And so the fun fact I found is that there is a song by the band Slayer called Angel of Death that is about an angel of death, uh, uh, specifically about Joseph Mengel. It's German. I'm not quite sure if I pronounce that right. Uh, But he was called the Angel of Death after working for the Nazis as a doctor experimenting on Jews in Auschwitz. Oh, his name is then pronounced Mengele. Mengele? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So Joseph Mengele, he would fall into the same category as the rest of the angels of death that I'll be talking about today. But the only difference for him is that he was given official permission to kill innocent people. But he definitely qualifies. Oh, yeah, definitely. Because, yeah, he um, did a lot of... um, Horrific experiments. Yeah, and especially on, like, twins and stuff, where, like, there's twins who basically survived because they were part of his experiment. So they were kind of kept up better than everyone else which is kind of sad like that's how you literally survived the holocaust was by being an experiment 
that's excruciating yeah so that's my fun fact was that there's there's a song that exists that's written about one of the angels angels of death so i mean fun fact, not surprising <laughs> sadly it's not surprising that not really <laughs> yeah all right shall we hop into our full topics yeah lady poisoners all right <laughs> yes yeah, so i'm gonna talk about lady poisoners first i'm gonna give you a small history about poison in itself um, especially one of like the top used poisons. So yeah, poison has been considered the feminine murder weapon for most of history. And honestly, it really is. Makes sense. Um, especially our friendly household substance of arsenic. Uh, was that like, okay, because I hear about like arsenic being used as poison in the olden days all the time. Was that really that easy to get your hands on? Like, did they not know? Yes. So in the 19th century, it was found literally everywhere. Wallpaper, toys, household cleaning products, cosmetics, medicine, and even found in various articles of clothing. Why? Why? What did, what, like, why? (laughs) Apparently it was just well used in those, like, I guess, like, I think it was in paint and stuff, right? Was it like a dye? Like there's, I, I remember there's one kind of poison that made a very vibrant color green no. and killed like a whole bunch of people. No, arsenic is definitely not one of those. Um, but yeah, nobody what? batted an eye if you asked to purchase arsenic from your local drugstore or general store, as it was so common and cheap that even children could get their hands on it. I'm what? Yeah, like no. the fact, like the fact that um, children could purchase it made me definitely very uncomfortable. As yeah. arsenic is easily misidentified as sugar and used to be generally kept in unlabeled containers. There were no. a lot of accidental arsenic poisoning on top of the more diabolical poisonings that we're going to be talking about. Uh, oh my god! Like it's wait, okay, it 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 should. Oh man. So, arsenic is one of those poisons that was extremely easy to use due to being colorless and odorless on top of being super easy to acquire. Um, As it became evident that it was being used for more foul activities, government started to enact legislation that would hopefully limit the use of arsenic as a poison. One Mm -hmm. such act in the UK was the Arsenic Act of 1851, which legislated that anyone selling arsenic needed to keep records of who bought it, how much was purchased, and the stated purpose. If it was to be used for medicine or agricultural purposes, then the powder needed to be colored with either soot or indigo so that okay. you could identify it, that it wouldn't be considered, like, sugar, so, right? Yeah, so it wouldn't get mixed up. That makes sense. Um, and because then, like, if you're using it in a diabolical way, people would still see it, hopefully. <laughs> you, you, Yeah, you have a better chance of getting caught. Yeah. Um, so the max penalty for breaking these rules was 20 pounds, which is the equivalent to 13,000 pounds in 2014. Okay. I was going to say that feels like a bit of a slap on the wrist. Yeah, no, in the 1800s, it it was more than a slap on the wrist. 17 years later, a pharmacy act was passed, which limited who was allowed to sell the substance. This act was put in place after a massive accidental poisoning in 1858, when approximately 200 people were poisoned with arsenic that was put into popular sweets. Oh my word! So basically, like the the guy, like yeah, so it's like they went to go buy like the sugar or whatever that was used, um, and the same place um, sold arsenic, and one of the people accidentally grabbed arsenic instead of the sugar. 
No. Oh, man. And so... Can you imagine the guilt you would feel for doing that accidentally? I... Oh, did anyone check in on them? Are they okay? <laughs> 21 of the victims oh, passed away. Um, it wasn't then until 1933 that these two acts were repealed and then combined into a Pharmacy and Poisons Act, which regulated even more types of poisons than just arsenic. Good. <laughs> um, but this episode, Yikes. I'm going to focus on some of the famous women who used various poisons to their advantage as they eliminated anyone in the way of their dreams. Um, so I chose two French women who both have really interesting stories behind their poisoning escapades and are connected by the many, many other women who followed in their footsteps, both during the 1600s and after. Okay. All right. So poisoner number one is the French aristocrat Marie Madeleine d'Aubray, better known as the Marquis de Brinvilliers or Madame de Brinvilliers. The madame had an interesting childhood, according to her confessions at trial. So she was the eldest of five children in a wealthy upper-class family born in, in 1630 and is said to have been loved by her father very much. She claims to have been sexually abused at the age of seven, but never said who the abuser was. She also claimed to have sexual relations with her younger brother, Antoine. Okay, so due to being a woman, she was not eligible to her father's estate but she had a sizable mm-hmm. dowry of 200,000 livres for when she married the future Marquis de Brinvilliers um, at the age of 21. At the time Damn. of her death, she had a total of seven children. However, some of the children are considered to be illegitimate due to affairs that she had with various men. Ooh. Yeah. We usually hear that happening on the other side. That's... No, the madame had, like, she was something else. Um, so yeah, the married couple um, became friends with an officer named Gooden de Saint Croix, who would become one of her longest-lasting affairs, and a very big part of this story. Wow. Okay. So Madame's father was super pissed that she was having an affair with Gooden, as it would damage mm-hmm. his reputation among the French aristocratic society forever. He also caught wind that his daughter was separating her wealth from that of her husband's, as he was gambling their money away. Okay, honestly, like, fair then, as far as that part goes. Yes, but separating money at this time in French society was as good as calling a divorce. So it was a huge no-no to, like, the high society to be separating your money. No matter what your husband was doing with it, you don't separate your money. (laughs) Gotcha. Because that's basically, like, in their eyes, legally a divorce. (laughs) Right, and divorce would have been, like, the ultimate no-no. You just, yeah. like, don't do that no matter what. Yeah. Even though, clearly, like, their relationship is dead. She's cheating on him, and he's gambling away all of their life savings. <laughs> Nowadays, that would be grounds for a divorce. <laughs> yeah. So, her father's solution? Have the man arrested right in front of his daughter and put into the Bastille for several months in 1663 by a letter signed by the king himself. The man that she's in love with. Yes. You know, some people just talk it out. Like, like that's an option. It's an option, but forgot, not but... for her, for the madame's papa. Clearly. Um. So because he was, like, friends with the king. So he literally just went to the king and said, have this letter that will literally get this man arrested for no reason. Wow. To keep him away from my daughter. What the heck? So, St. Croix is said to have been imprisoned at the same time as an Italian 
who is a known expert in poisoning. But others suspect that he already knew a man who is a pharmaceutical chemist and might have learned the arts through lectures from this other friend of his. Right. Some historians are also skeptical of St. Croix knowing either man, believing that he just used their names so that he could sell his own poisons at a higher price. So, like, pseudonym. Yeah. Three years later, the Madame's father passed away on September 10th, 1666. Then, between July and September of 1670, her two brothers also die. What a coincidence. How could that have ever happened? Who knows? So the first of her brothers um, to die had mysteriously gotten ill after eating a pie. But he had already been suspicious of attempted poisoning after his drink earlier that year had kind of tasted metallic to him. So, I... Okay. So, yes, be very cautious about what a, a sibling of yours is intending when they hand you a pie. <laughs> Listen, you never know when your sibling has a vendetta that they that they intend to carry out with pie. Like, you know. Exactly. Really, honestly, we should just all stop eating pie. So, the madame wasn't suspected of any of the deaths until 1672, when her mm-hmm. friend and lover, St. Croix, passed away. Oh. He left behind all the evidence of their work together in mixing up the perfect poisons in the form of letters and a note from the madame promising St. Croix a large sum of money. So, she, he passed away. Was that one of the, like, did she poison him? I think he might have passed away, like, more naturally. Okay. I don't think he's, like, 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 nothing kind of said, like, if he was one of her victims. Okay. Because I was wondering if maybe she killed him trying to get him to shut up and, like, destroy the evidence. No, he was, like, super, like, I think he was super quiet, but then he kind of just left all the evidence in his home. People come into his home, find, and, like, find it, right? Um, Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. So the madame fled from France into England and remained hidden from the French authorities for years, living off of money sent by her sister, whom she did not kill. Because she's sending her money. (laughs) Pretty much. Um, She was finally caught in Belgium in 1679 and was found with a letter of confession. She confessed to poisoning her father and two brothers, but Mm -hmm. also to the attempted murder of her daughter, sister, and husband by poison. Oh boy, so, okay, so hang on, so, so she killed, okay, daughters, so she, like, 50-50? Like, she killed, like, half yeah. the people that she tried to kill? Yeah. Successful. Before her execution, the madame was subjected to water torture, Ooh. but she never okay, revealed that's... any new information other than that she sold a vial of poison to a man who wanted to kill his wife. Rumor has it that she practiced her poisons... On people mm-hmm. inside the Hotel Dieu Hospital, which was overcrowded and more concerned with saving souls than lives. At this time, if you were, like, a higher member of, like, the French aristocracy, a lot of the women would take, like, different, like, baked goods and different things like that, like, and go through up the hospitals for, like, goodwill, right? So she would take her poisonous pies and then adjust the dosage until she killed somebody, or, like... And I, I, I don't... They're thinking that she probably just like the actual mixture of the poisons to see how, like, what the, like, what kind of symptoms, what kind of things would have come up, right? Um, and then also, like, the dosage levels of it, right? Gotcha. Um, however, this is not fully confirmed as there weren't any good records that can prove the theory because 
No one cared Sounds about these people. Sounds about right. Yikes. Yikes, yikes, yikes. But she was known to go and stuff to this hospital that was known to be all about saving their souls, not their actual lives. Uh, yeah, so she went to a place where she knew she could get away with it. Yeah. Yikes. So the Madame story sparked a paranoia in the king, Louis the Fourteenth, that there Naturally. were more poisoners among the French nobility. This time frame was known as the Affair of Poisons, and more than a few hundred noble people were arrested and tried. Ooh. One of these noble folk is my next lady poisoner, Catherine Mon Voisson, better known as La Voisson, which actually translates to the neighbor in English. <laughs> She's the girl next door. <laughs> kind of, yeah. <laughs> so, La Voisson was a fortune teller and purported witch of black magic. It is said that she killed 1,000 people with her black magic and poisons, but some believe it could be up to 2,500 murdered. Wait, 1,000 was the lowball? I thought that was people exaggerating. There's No, that's no. the lowball. Did she actually... Like, that's what they're considering is what she is, like, like for her selling them or, and, yeah. I thought you meant that, like, people at the day, like, because she was a fortune teller, assumed that she was this crazy mass serial killer as well. L nope. Literally, like, a thousand plus. Possibly, yes. How? As just, like, a random person? Like... Well, hang on. So, while she was starting out as a harmless fortune teller, she became uh -huh. a midwife. Which then snowfalled into providing oh. abortions. Oh, got it. Okay. As she started to become famous throughout French society, her business ventures grew into selling magical items and, of course, poisons. At right. the time, she became extremely wealthy as her clientele were some of the highest class citizens that France had at the time, including at least two of the Mancini sisters who were highly regarded in the king's court. She was supporting a family of six while also being known to have at least six lovers. Well, okay. I mean, yeah. Yeah. So these lovers included an executioner, an alchemist, an architect, and a magician. What a bizarre mix. I'm like, I love the fact that she had an ex like she was dating an executioner. Yeah. While also like, selling poisons. Yeah, which well, is technically like a crime people. at this point. That's an interesting mix. So the magician is actually said to have pushed her to kill her own husband, which he was almost successful at doing until she changed her mind and aborted the plan. Okay. So, like, I... Yeah. Okay. So, Love Wasson was known to be super into alchemy, where she would fund projects which were actually ultim like ultimately, unfortunately, run by con artists. Mm-hmm. She was also known to be an alcoholic and got into a lot of confrontations with her enemy slash rival in the poisoning world, Marie Boss, or La Boss. Okay. Boss would go on to say that La Voisson would burn the fetuses that she aborted in late pregnancies in her home furnace before burying them in the garden. Okay, that's messed up. That is, that's messed up. The accusation got to the point that Louis XIV gave the order that La Vosson's abortion section of her enterprise should not be investigated further so that this is the least known part of all of her crimes. What? Seriously? Like, I'm, I'm actually what? wondering if Louis had a pile of mistresses' abortions to hide 
since the That's aristocracy, exactly like, since, like since the aristocratic society were her main clients. But who knows? Since he had the investigation stopped on that aspect. No, that is a thousand percent. Like I, I am on board with that theory. That makes yeah. the most sense to me, especially at that point to hear abortion and like like fetuses being disposed of like that, like at that time. Like, yeah. Well, like abortions were like illegal, right? They wouldn't look into it. Like abortions were basically illegal to do. Yeah. So if it was found out that Louis's mistresses had abortions through her, then Louis might have been put on the spot as to, well, did you push for it or did they choose to? Well, that's what I mean. Like, if he wasn't involved, if he didn't have something personally to gain from it not being investigated, there's no way that he would leave that untouched. Like, yeah. yeah. Yikes. All right. So what we do know a lot about is her magic and poison side of the business. Mm-hmm. She spent almost all of her money on making her performance spaces as lavishly decorated as possible. For example, she wore a crimson red velvet robe with golden eagles that would have cost her 1,500 livres in the 1600s. That would be approximately $30,000 in Canadian dollars today. That, mm, that's an expensive wardrobe. Yeah, and that's just one robe. Like, this is just, like, one robe. That's not even, like, the whole wardrobe. <laughs> that that would be such a gorgeous robe, though. Do you have a picture of it? I can get one for the Instagram. Excellent, because that, I will try to find that one is something I want to see. I mean, like, I think it would be gorgeous. Yeah. But expensive for that day. Yeah. I'll definitely see if I can find Absolutely. a picture of it, because, yeah. Well, okay. expensive now, to be honest. <laughs> yeah. Around 1665-1666, so around the time that our friend Madame's family was starting to die off, (laughs) La Voisson's fortune-telling was called into question, but she defended herself well and was allowed to continue practicing. Okay. Apparently, she also was really good at hiding the rest of her magical abilities, as she was also practicing black magic, including amulets, love potions, and black mass rituals. Yikes. That's that get, that gets into yikes territory pretty quick. Yeah. Uh yikes. So these rituals allowed clients to come pray to Satan to make their wishes come true, while a baby would be held over a bowl at the altar with its blood being drained. Some sources mm. of the time say that the baby was killed this way, while others say that the baby was already dead from either abortions or stillbirths. Nonetheless, I do not recommend this practice, and I'm definitely grossed out by it. Yeah, let's maybe not uh, let's maybe not sacrifice babies. Just, no just sacrificing maybe. babies and no sacrificing animals. Yeah, let's not do that. Everything else, I'm 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 a little bit more on board with. Love, um, I, love, a little bit love more potions. Love potions. I'm like not cool with. That's like that's like the magic magicy equivalent of like date rape. Like that's that's I'm ooh, not cool with that ooh. either. Like there's more about those potions coming up. Oh dear lord. Okay. <laughs> so first though, let's get to the whole poisoning part of La Vosson's yeah. life. The art of poisoning had been perfected at least a decade earlier by an Italian woman named. Guilla Tofana and her fellow French woman who were poisoning at the same time or before her. Now, unlike our previous poisoner, Madame de Brunvillier, La Voisson did not make her own poisons. She just sold them. 
Instead, she acquired her poisons from other women, such as the apothecary Catherine Trianon. Trianon was another fortune teller who made and sold poisons. These okay. two women had one other very important woman in common, Madame de Montespan. Montespan was the king's official royal mistress. Mm, oh dear. Because at this time in French, in the French um, monarchy, um, you actually would have like a official royal mistress that like everyone knew, and like the public knew. Um, and they actually had a lot of um, sway in the royal court. Interesting. So there's like a, there's a few of like the king's mistresses who actually like did almost more for French society than the king and queen did. Wow. Because they actually could like have a political hand in things. It was like a really important role. Yeah, like it was apparently. actually more important than being coming queen that more families were raising their kids to be the French royal mistress rather That's than wild. to be queen. Yeah. It is said That's that Montespan had, ha- had first hired La Voisson for one of her black masses, which was officiated by the magician and an abbe in 1667. Montespan had prayed to become the royal mistress, and that wish was literally granted a year later. <laughs> so perhaps it was something about these um, black masses and praying to Satan, because yeah, at least like one this- of them did come true like a year later. Like, if you're willing to sell your soul, maybe. I don't questions. With the success of the Black Mass, Le Voisson was never short of work from the royal mistress. As we know, a king's favor was usually short-lived. So when his interest yeah. in Montespan started to weaken, she did more and more Black Masses with, with Le Voisson, including being the human altar herself for at least one of the Masses. So, okay, but, like, okay, what, didn't the human altar, like, have to, like, get their blood drained or something, though? Like, how did I she... I guess she just, like, I guess they just, like, gave, like, a blood sacrifice, but, like, not the same as, like, With a the baby's? baby's worth of blood. <laughs> if that's actually true that they use babies, right? Ugh. I really hope it isn't. <laughs> La Voisson also supplied Montespan with an aphrodisiac, which Montespan drugged the king with on more than one occasion. Ugh, this is what I mean. Yeah, except this time is the mistress date raping the king. Yeah, but that's still not okay. <laughs> Soon, Montespan started to threaten the king with death if he should ever leave her. Wow, healthy relationship. The king, being a historical male, likely laughed it off as he started to court more younger women. So how long until he died? <laughs> In 1679, Montespan mm-hmm. made true to her threat and contacted La Voisson and Trianon for assistance in ending the king's life. Uh-huh. There was some hesitation, but La Voisson immediately agreed and ran a meeting to plan out the murder with Trianon and two others, one of the others being her daughter's fiance. Listen, listen, if your besties wouldn't uh, assassinate a, um, a, 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 uh, uh, I lost the word, I lost King? the word, I lost the joke, I lost the plot. I was, I was going to make it sound more dramatic, like a political powerhouse, but like, yeah, no, if, if your besties wouldn't literally help you assassinate the actual king of your country, then are they really your besties? Like, honestly. Honestly, no, they're not. 
<laughs> Raise the bar. <laughs> so Raise your standards. Trianon had a change of heart and tried to convince Lavoisson to stop the plot by giving her uh-huh. an ill-fated reading. Okay. So literally, I'll give you an ill-fated fortune to try to stop you from murdering the king. So I, I'll just, I'll, I'll fake your future teller reading and just tell you that it goes really, really badly rather than just like, again, okay, you can talk, you can talk to people. Like, like you could just talk to people about stuff. Like, yeah, you can just have a conversation. No, apparently not. You either need to poison them when they're in their pies. Yeah. yeah, (laughs) Or give them an ill-fated fortune telling reading. Yeah, lie to them while telling them you're predicting the future. Shockingly, <sighs> this didn't work. So, <laughs> Le Voisson continued with her foolproof plan. Wait, hand the king... Literally, <laughs> her foolproof plan is to hand the king a petition where the paper was poisoned. I, is that strong enough to kill a person? Like, how I mean, soaked in poison would it have to be? It's totally foolproof. Nothing could go wrong. Except don't they have to hold the paper in order to hand it to the king? How is she just wearing gloves? Is that normal? Like I don't know. <laughs> but of course, no things went wrong. Obviously. On March 5th, 1679, Lavoisson herself went to the king and tried to give him the petition. Uh-huh. However, the rest uh-huh. of France seemed to have had the same idea. Only with regular paper and not poisoned ones because of all the non-poisoned petitions being thrust towards the king he wisely chose not to take all of them including the one holding his death so he just he never even touched it he He never even even touched touched it. it well uh that backfired um yeah so annoyed lavoisan handed her daughter the petition and told her to burn it which she did and then promptly got in touch with Trianon to plan out the next idea. And, okay, hold up, hold up, hold up. So, poisoned paper just hands it to her daughter? Or, like, are they being, like, do, do, how, how, how is it killing the king and not them? I don't understand. I'm guessing was that he... they had, like, maybe it was, like, in, like, an envelope or something. So then when the king pulled it out of the envelope and touched the paper, or they were wearing gloves. I mean, women at that in that time, it was normal to wear gloves. Yeah, I guess. I mean, if it was, like, a normal fashion thing, then I could see them getting away with it. But, like, uh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Maybe let's not be casually passing that around with people. I don't know. Well, especially not our own kids. Like... Yeah, right? So, unfortunately for us, we will never know what other foolproof plans could have been concocted after this one surprisingly didn't work. Hmm. This was all happening during the height of the affair of poisons as many women were confessing to poisoning folks during the trials for witchcraft. In January of 1679, Lavoisson's fellow fortune teller and rival poisoner, Labasse, was arrested, and the police became highly aware of the underground fortune-telling poison trade. Fortune-telling poison trade. Yes. Okay. Like, literally, if you were a fortune teller at this time, you were most likely also selling poisons. (laughs) That is the most bizarre combination and makes a lot of stereotypes all of a sudden make sense. Yeah. So on March 12th, 1679, Lavoisson mm-hmm. was arrested 
as she left Mass and just hours before her scheduled meeting with Trianon. Okay. Which I'm like, I kind of wish that this meeting happened so we knew what other foolproof <laughs> plans they could have come up with. Maybe if I cough in his general direction, he'll die. <laughs> foolproof. Yeah. Yikes. Um, okay, so Lavoisson was never tortured. Even though a formal order was passed down to allow her to be tortured for information. Many believe that she was spared the fate of torture because of all of the high-ranking aristocratic men and women she could name as clients of hers. That's honestly fair, because it would kind of mess up a whole big portion of society if they tortured that information out of her. Instead, she was knowingly kept drunk throughout her imprisonment, as officials were well aware of her alcoholism, and she spilled confession after confession in her drunken state. So she just laid, out, laid it all out anyway. Yeah. Well, as far at, as foolproof plans go. At first, she kept most of her clients a secret, claiming to have uh-huh. sent them to La Bosse for poison. So basically, mm-hmm. that rivalry never died until they literally died. Nope, doesn't sound like it. Nope, nope. But then confessed to selling them to several members of the royal court. She took the information about the plot to murder the king with Montespan to her grave. It was her daughter who decided to spill that gossip once her mother was gone. I knew it. I knew it. I knew it. Never, never just hand off evidence to someone who's not part of the planning. Don't do that. On February 22nd, 1680... Levoisson was burned at the stake for witchcraft. Not for poisoning and murder, just for I mean, witchcraft. You know what? At this point, like, I, like, are, mm, <laughs> like, are they even going to admit to the murdering? Because that would admit, like, so many of the clients, like, it would confirm the rumors rather than just saying, oh, she's a witch. That's why you're hearing all these rumors. She's crazy. Yeah. Like, it kind of protects the aristocracy. So I'm, uh, or, I, 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 I aristocracy words are hard but yeah so that one actually doesn't really surprise me yeah so she hasn't been forgotten as there are a few film and literary works that include her story my favorite is book number two of the lady slayer series by lana popovic called poison priestess both books in the series are definitely worth the read with book one being about lady bathory who i will be talking about at some time during this podcast because i love her to death okay So, now that we've looked at some historical female poisoners, I do want to do a quick close-to-home murder that included the usual poison of choice, arsenic. So, this isn't a female Mm -hmm. murderer, but it does fit with the theme, and it's just an interesting story in general. So, here's a brief account of the milkshake murder that happened here in B.C. in 1965. Wait, do I know about this? I'm hoping you know about this. I might know a little bit about this. Okay, well, I'm going to give you more details. Up and down the streets of downtown Vancouver in the 1960s was brightly lit up with massive neon signs. One such sign was the largest freestanding neon sign in the world, and that was the Bomac car dealership sign. This particular neon sign could be seen at least 18 miles away before the area became more and more built up as time went on. Rene Castellini a fan-favorite radio promoter on CKNW decided to live up on that sign until every single car in the lot was sold. He lived up there for seven days, 
while his promotion stunt received attention worldwide. Elsewhere in mm. Vancouver, his wife was slowly dying of arsenic poisoning. At the time, no one knew what was making her so sick, but she finally passed away in August of 1965, ending her slow suffering. Aww. Many thought that Renee was a doting husband, as he brought her vanilla milkshakes from White Spot daily for months, even while she was in the hospital. Oh, the piece of shit. After his wife's death, Renee went on a morning vacation to Disneyland with his mistress, who he planned on marrying. This mistress I... was a switchboard operator at the Bomac car lot. No. Yes. Uh, okay. Hang on. A morning vacation to Disneyland? Yep. The happiest place on earth. Yes. All right. Seems legit. Continue. <laughs> A suspicious intern at the hospital had taken a sample of his wife's hair and had done some testing, finding the signs of arsenic poisoning at all but one point in the hair's timeline. The oh seven word. days that Renee was living on the Bomac sign. There's no way. It's that specific? You can tell that from a hair? Yep. That's crazy. While Renee was still at the happiest place on earth, Police exhumed his wife's body to confirm that arsenic was the cause of death and searched the home, finding the weed killer that was hidden in her milkshakes. Renee was arrested and sentenced to life in prison the moment he returned home. Good, good, good. Like, oh, like, ugh, no, like, mm, you're not, how, 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 how are you going to use, okay, and also White Spot, like, milkshakes, that's, that's what you said it was from, right? Yes. White Spot? Yeah. Yes. Okay. I don't know if any of our listeners have ever had White Spot milkshakes. They're freaking delicious. They're the freaking so, best. They are amazing. So, to turn, like, something so freaking delightful into your murder weapon is reprehensible. It's like, uh, no, jail, jail. Rest of his life, jail. I hope he stayed there till he died. Like, that's, like, no, no, we don't, no, mm -mm, mm -mm, mm -mm, no, sir, no. Sadly, the white spot that Renee bought all the vanilla milkshakes at has been recently torn down, and apartments are now on that lot. Sounds the like Bomac sign, however, is still there in a weird way. Woo. It was deemed to be a landmark worthy of preservation in 1997, so the fixtures were used to display the Toys R Us sign for the new use of that land. You've got to be kidding me. The Bomac sign can be seen peeking out underneath of the Toys R Us logo. It is a major topic of controversy in Vancouver for multiple reasons, including that Toys R Us isn't honoring its heritage, a fear of it not being earthquake-proof, it was deemed safe by safety officials, and that it would cause noise-slash-light pollution. The hours of the sign lighting has now become restricted between 10 p.m. and 4 a.m. to quell this. If Toys R Us closes on that site, then the sign could be demolished if a new agreement for the heritage status isn't signed. Okay. <laughs> like, that, that's just Vancouver. Like, I... For more information yep. about this murder, I do recommend visiting the Vancouver <laughs> Police Museum if you're in the area to see artifacts relating to the case, including one of the takeout cups that was used. Oh my god, they kept it. 
Well, like you said, they have like an actual like whole display with like one of the takeout cups from um from White Spot, um a White Spot menu mm-hmm. and all sorts of different things in that it's a really cool display. If you don't live in the area though, you can pick up Murder by Milkshake, an astonishing true story of adultery, arsenic, and a charismatic killer by Eve Lazarus. I'm never gonna be able to drink a vanilla white spot milkshake the same ever again. Not like not that I go there like regularly or anything but like it's it's like a family restaurant like it's the place that you go when like your oldest sibling is graduated or something like it's like it's a family outing right like it's my like, like the like i mean i can't have them anyways because i'm lactose intolerant fair enough <laughs> but i would still drink them and be okay with it as long as it wasn't that somebody else had bought me that milkshake then i'd be questioning then i'd be like okay i'm questioning your motive why did you buy me this milkshake i know about this murder i'm afraid yeah no it does it does make me want to go back to white spot and get a milkshake though i'm not gonna lie it's a little bit late to go get one right now yeah currently it's a little bit too late for that but like just make sure that nobody else touches your milkshake yes other Watch than the staff make it. making it, <laughs> yeah, probably can trust the staff. They weren't the they weren't the ones unless, involved in this case. Unless their sugar was accidentally, <laughs> mm, I like I, oh man, I just I hope I hope that's like significantly less possible these days. Like I believe it is be a- because I'm pretty sure yeah, like. Do we even really use, like, I don't think much stuff uses arsenic anymore because, oh, probably because of the amount of times people have been murdered by it. Poison. Like, it's just poison. Like, it's like, it's using it as, like, anything, like, other than, like, literal, like, weed killer or, like, rat poison or whatever is just questionable behavior. I don't know. Like, I'm, I'm, listen, I'm not a doctor. I'm not a scientist. But I don't think if something had arsenic on the label, I don't think that I'd be too terribly inclined to just like use it willy-nilly i might ask for a second opinion right so yeah that's all of our lady poisoners our poison <laughs> well angels of death do often use poison as well it's not the only method that they use but they often use poison too so it's not entirely over we have a few more poisoning stories yay this is about to get grim <laughs> okay Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. 
Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ready to pop the question and take advantage of 30% off? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com to get 30% off. Select lab-grown diamonds. That's BlueNile.com for 30% off lab-grown diamonds. BlueNile.com. So, Ashley, what do you know about the angel of death phenomenon? I know that, like, in a way, I think, isn't it? kind of like the precursor almost to um, medically, like some of like the medically induced, like induced murders like that we have. Well, not murders, but like the medically induced deaths. Like, you mean like euthanasia? Kind of, yeah. Like in a way, isn't it like that they kind of, like, because I think if I remember clearly, like, some of the ones that I've learned about were ones who mm-hmm. thought that they were doing a favor. Yes. So what you're talking about is is uh, an angel of mercy, and we'll talk about that. But this is essentially euthanasia, but without the person's consent. Gotcha. The difference, euthanasia is when someone wants to pass away, that they would rather move on than continue the symptoms that they're experiencing. And they want to just end things. They don't want to be living the way that they're living anymore. That on its own is a controversial subject. This is not even that. This is, this is worse than that. This is, that person doesn't have a choice. I'm choosing for them. And I'm, I'm going to go on a whole big long rant on that in a little bit. Um, yeah. So that's kind of, but I'll, I'll, I'll level the starting fields with just like, that's kind of the difference between those two things. Yeah. Cause I know, um, I think in like season two of why women kill one of the women's husbands is like an angel of death that he, but he thinks he's doing it for their good and he's not mm-hmm. that he actually has like the permission from them it's just that he finds people who are sick and then helps them die because he thinks he's doing a good thing by get, yeah. putting them out of their misery so yeah so we'll talk about other killers like him in a little bit <laughs> so the angel of death or angel of mercy phenomenon refers to murderers uh, serial killers who use their position as a professional carer so a doctor a nurse a care aide etc as a way to select and kill their victims while flying under the radar. They are also known as medical or healthcare serial killers. Uh, and most of the time, they work alone, though there have been a few cases where there were multiple killers or where the reason the killer got away with it for so long was alleged to be that the other nurses who should have stopped them turned a blind eye to protect the reputation of the clinic. Okay, yeah, this sounds kind of a slightly familiar. Like, I can think of, like, a few ones that I've heard. I hadn't, like, heard the term the same way. Right. Yeah. So some more statistics about them. Notably, Dr. Kin Kin, assistant professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at the University of Virginia, noted that these types of killings increased between 1970 to 2006, rising from only 10 cases to 40 cases in the United States. Now, I'm going to throw in a little disclaimer here. Let's be clear. This is still a rare occurrence. I don't want to say the numbers are increasing and let it be a fear-mongering thing. It's a very rare type of serial killer. You're far more likely to die of heart disease than pretty much anything else still, so I don't want anyone getting anxious about this. (laughs) Granted, these are only the cases that got caught, but anyway, they found the majority of these cases uh, 
happened in a hospital, much fear happened in a nursing home, and a few happened at the victim's home, like in a live-in nurse kind of circumstance. So the methodology isn't always consistent. It ranges from lethal injections to suffocation, and in one particularly horrific incident, uh, drowning. Yeah, um, that's definitely not an easy way of doing it. No. Uh, I don't want to go into too much detail uh, on that case because I didn't dive into it deeply. Um, but I I saw enough to know that like it would have been absolutely horrific and I cannot imagine the pain and terror that that victim went through. Yeah, no, definitely. Like, like suffocation and stuff like that, like you can kind of do it more while they're sleeping. Drowning? But drowning is uh, just like, that's like the most violent way of going in this kind of scenario. Drowning in a hospital bed is like, yeah. Uh, so... But continuing, the thing that makes an angel of death an angel of death is that they use their career as a caregiver to murder their patients. The other details are more or less irrelevant to the title, which means that there's also a range of motives that I wanted to talk about as well, because they're, I've got a list of like four of them, and they're quite different from each other. So there are a few reasons criminologists say that the angel of death killers do what they do. They could be thrill seekers. Uh, just like any other serial killer who gets off on taking someone's life who just so happens to work in a hospital. Uh, medical killers diagnosed with Munchausen syndrome by proxy would probably be categorized here. To clarify for anyone listening, Munchausen sy syndrome is a disorder in which someone has the uncontrollable urge to fake sickness or otherwise cause themselves to be sick in order to have people care for them and make themselves the center of attention. Munchausen's Munchausen syndrome by proxy is where they feel a similar urge, but they inflict the illness on another person in order to receive that same kind of sympathetic attention. A famous example of this is the case of Gypsy Rose. Okay, yeah. But in Gypsy Rose, obviously, it was a little bit flipped where the person with the Munchausen's uh, syndrome by proxy was actually the person that was, like, murdered. Not the one doing the murder ring, but basically if that case had gone too far and she had accidentally killed Gypsy Rose, that would have put her in the angel of death category. Okay. Well, as her mother, it would have been kind of a gray area, but she probably probably could have been. So in the case of angels of death, they could also be looking for praise, uh, bringing the patient to the brink of death and then kind of like, you know, miraculously reviving them by being conveniently nearby or because they know the cause of alarm and therefore know how to remedy the root issue faster than anybody else. Okay. So if they know that it's an overdose, they know what antidote to use, you know, like that kind of thing. If they know that they cut off the oxygen, they know to turn the oxygen back on like that. And then they get all this praise for like being the hero. Yeah. It's an attention seeking thing. That's, that's the thrill of it for them. Uh, their victims could include patients who weren't seriously ill or who were expected to recover, who suddenly took a turn for the worse due to the actions of the murderer. Uh, this could be people of any age. The only thing that matters here is access to the victim and the attention received from the act. This bring them back or bring them to the edge and be praised for bringing them back tactic can also be attributed to a savior complex. So not every killer with this MO necessarily has Munchausen syndrome by proxy. So that's main motive number one. <laughs> so they could also be doing it for a sense of control, power that they're unable to achieve honestly or at such an extreme that, in my opinion, no human should be allowed to attain. If your life feels so out of control that you begin to think that the only way you can have a sense of power is by killing another human being, go to therapy immediately. Yes, please. please, for the sake of all of us, do not pass go, do not collect $200 straight to therapy. That's yeah. it. That's, that's it. 
And that's all that really needs to be said about that. That one is pretty simple. You feel out of control, so you take control by taking someone's life. It's gross. Yeah. Don't do it. <laughs> all right. There's also those. So that's reason number two. So reason number three is that there's also those who do it to gain something material, maybe stealing money from the patient, maybe by committing insurance fraud or just pocketing their cash or possessions or just like making their burden by, um, you know, the amount of stuff that they have to do, just easing their own stress. Right. So like they have some kind of like physical gain from it. So this is kind of the simplest motive, just plain old, you have something I want, so I'll just keep you sick so I can keep taking it. And then one day the person dies either to cover the killer's tracks or just because they kept them too close to the line and couldn't undo what they'd done. That's probably like one of the scarier ones. That's, yeah, that's like a pretty, like, the most of the top three, you could probably attribute some like sociopathic traits uh, to, if not like a antisocial personality disorder fully um those traits often get associated with serial killers and that would like those would come probably be the more like common like angel of death killers are rare but among angel of death killers that would be the more like things that you would kind of expect to see from your serial killer anyway so it doesn't like make the phenomenon outstanding in itself yeah but then there's the mercy killers and that kind of ties back to the case that you were talking about from uh why women kill yeah so that's probably where this guy would fall in so these guys are or these people it's not just guys i say guys as a gender neutral term i realize it's not really but sorry uh these people who do it are the ones that are doing it thinking that they're helping whether they think that they're ending their victim's suffering or that somehow they deserve it these are the ones who inspire the alternate title Angel of Mercy. They break the mold of the typical serial killer in the sense that, like I said before, while we associate serial killers with having sociopathic traits or even being diagnosed with sociopathy or antisocial personality disorder, which is what it's like more formally called, um, the concept of killing someone to end their suffering implies a sense of empathy. So this distinguishes it from the other three motives that we were talking about, because like even though like misguided and twisted for sure, but there has to be some kind of underlying empathy in order to care whether someone is suffering or not, mm. which is not something that someone diagnosed with antisocial personality disorder would be likely to feel very naturally or strongly. It's not like um, a sociopathic trait that would commonly present among other serial killers. So these are the ones that kind of like stand out the most. These people, they don't believe that they're being self-serving or evil, but they genuinely believe instead that they're saving their patients or bettering society in some way. But regardless of intent, what they're doing is taking away the agency of their victims, deciding for them or for their families that death is better for them than life. They aren't given a fighting chance. They aren't given a choice that should be theirs to make. If someone is in a near-death situation, whether from an accident, an illness, or even just time, it is up to that person to decide for themselves if they want to let themselves pass or fight to stay alive or do what they can to improve their quality of life. Yeah, like that's like why we don't have like the do not resuscitate disclosures and stuff like that, right? Where it's like then that person has it on them that says do not resuscitate because they do not want it. Or exactly. like, if they don't have that, you friggin' resuscitate. You assume that they want to resuscitate unless there's a do not resuscitate bracelet or something on them. Yeah. Like, you can't just assume that because someone's situation seems unbearable to you that it is unbearable to them or that they genuinely want to preemptively end their life because of it. Like, it's 
just the underlying ableism here is just (laughs) yeah like yeah but the choice should never have been taken from these victims uh this also includes at least one case where the murderer killed babies who didn't have parents who could properly care for them according to the standard of a literal murderer okay i know this sounds bad but i would pretty much prefer that Mm -hmm. we had like your underground baby trade then just killing these babies like with our evangeline case like this ties back to the eva Eva hamilton episode we're selling babies again that is better than murdering them without anyone's consent that's yeah that's where we're at here like oh man but checks and balances to make sure that they actually have a better chance at life and they're not just being sold to a baby killer okay like not unregulated true that's called adoption yeah so yeah so obviously that case is disgusting and heartbreaking and rage inducing and i i don't i'm not gonna go on about it more than this i didn't look into it more than this because i will be here ranting for forever but like big oof this one got under my skin and i just immediately was just like in a mad fury over this from just reading the one line that that's what that person did and i just i i couldn't i couldn't dig into it any more than that because i was going to be mad yeah no i mean i i was i was going to be like raging and that was not going to be a fun episode anymore no okay well <sighs> okay in a way yes a fun episode yeah. but as we I have just... discussed multiple times take care of your mental health everyone yeah if yeah, it's going to make is... you in, go into a rage maybe don't do it this is me practicing what I preach. Don't, if, you, if you're at that level, just stop. It's okay. Just walk away. Find something slightly lighter. I did continue researching the subject. I just stayed away from, like, children um, as victims because that will get me heated faster than anything. So, so this leads me to my what can we do, what do we look out for section of the episode. So here is a list of some red flags, as according to Dr. Kinkin in the article by Fiona Guy, published by The Crime Traveler, and I'm specifying all of this because I'm literally quoting this whole list. I could not find a better one. And I, like, I, yeah, it, it, it's inconclusive. It's a short list. Um, and each of these things on their own aren't necessarily red flags, but combined, they build into a big red flag. So let's go through them. So red flag number one is a history of mental instability. Makes not sense. Everyone who's, makes sense. Not everyone who's mentally unstable is a scary person. If someone's been through or has a history of mental instability, they're generally more likely to be a victim than to create victims. Um, but combined with these other things, it becomes more of a red flag. Well, I would so. say that anybody who is doing these things is definitely mentally unstable. Yeah, you can't In do a way. these things be mentally healthy like that's not like no <laughs> mentally healthy people don't kill people <laughs> that's kind of the whole thing so yeah but yeah but also significantly more mentally unstable people or like yeah significantly more mentally unstable people are likely to be victims rather than to victimize yeah. so let's not contribute to the stigma but also this is on the list so Number two, a preference for night shifts or shifts with less staff and supervisors on duty. Yeah, they once again. enjoy night shifts? No witnesses. But there's also no witnesses. So, like, maybe just keep an eye on those people. Make sure check in on them. Make sure they're doing all right. Number three is a history of difficult personal relationships. 
again makes sense you're not going to be a murderer at work and then be perfectly normal elsewhere that's not really how that works there are some i mean (laughs) there are some who get away with it for like a long time but eventually like their strain is going to come out you know like it's not like if you can't handle human relationships like if, if you don't value human life you're probably going to have some issues in your relationships generally speaking yeah i mean you definitely think but like there are some serial killers where everybody's like it couldn't be them. They are so normal. But then mm-hmm. they have this little alter ego that, that they're super good at hiding until they're caught. For sure. For sure. Just like I said, on its own. Not necessarily really anything, but stacked with all these other things. It adds up. Number four, a tendency to, quote, predict when a patient will die. Because they know it's because they poison them. So if they predict that, oh, patient... 132 on floor b or whatever is like looking pretty rough like they might they might pass away soon and then they do and that keeps happening over and over again because remember some of these people are attention seekers and they're looking to be involved and they're trying to be noticed for being involved they're not going to keep their mouths shut yeah no they're definitely going to be the blabber mouths it's like oh yeah this person's gonna die tomorrow at four o'clock i bet you five (laughs) dollars on it (laughs) Tomorrow at 4 o'clock, pulls the plug. Um, Artless. So, number five, um, people who felt patients were a burden to them and an annoyance. So, if you have a nurse, or a, it was a large number of the killers were nurses. I think I mentioned that at some point later. Um, or maybe I already did. I don't remember. Uh, a large number of the killers were nurses regardless. So, if you hear a nurse complaining constantly about how patients are such a burden to them and they're so annoying and they don't want to have to deal with them anymore and they continue to work the job and also they have all these other traits, maybe check in on them. Maybe just on them, just in case. Just, like, keep a little, like, a little extra eye on them. I, like, I, I got it. Like, the healthcare industry is difficult. Nursing is hard. There's a lot of patients and people are obnoxious to work with. I understand. But... Also, you have people's lives in your hands, and, like, maybe we just check in on people who don't like them, so. Yeah, definitely. And especially if there's, like, a history of them complaining about somebody, and then that somebody almost Mm -hmm. always ends up dead. (laughs) Like, constantly, yeah. Like, maybe maybe just keep an extra eye, just in case. Six, uh, had problems with substance misuse. So, drugs or alcohol was a common trait. And seven, often moved from hospital to hospital. A lot of these killers, part of why they got away from it for so long was because they went, like, they worked for multiple hospitals and it takes a while for this pattern to build up before people start to notice. Yeah. So, I should clarify, not that they're working in multiple hospitals at the same time, but that they'll be working for one for a few years and then they'll quit or they'll get fired and then they'll move to another one and they'll work for another one for a few years and they'll quit or they'll get fired or they're, like, move cities or whatever okay um, gotcha. and then like one at a time but like over multiple over a long period of time all right uh another point to take note of is that in many cases there's a spike in patient deaths when a specific person is on shift and while this often turns out to be because the person is killing them that's not always the case as sometimes the murderer will poison a victim or tamper or whatever and leave them to die so the murderer won't always be present However, if there is a trend of death spiking during a certain person's shift, it's worth looking into. It could turn out the employee is just innocent, though unlucky, or it could turn out that there is a connection. It's always better to investigate and know rather than ignore it and let it slide. So investigate the person and the person before them. Yeah. Yeah. Investigate the people who are on that shift or around that shift. Yeah. 
if there's like a trend of at a certain time people keep spiking. Uh, all right, so that is the end of our info dump here and it's name dropping time. So we're gonna briefly go into some stories about some infamous angels of death. Before going into this, I just wanna clarify, I'm not gonna go into detail on how the victims were killed because again, this was making me mad. <laughs> um, but do be warned that there are a lot of them. Due, the, due to the constant access to potential victims and the ability to pass it off as something more common, angel of death killers tend to have particularly high kill rates. None of these have into the thousands. You've got me beat there. But so our first angel of death. Oh, and I the three that I grabbed uh, were the three names that kept popping up the most often. I just want to clarify one more thing. I don't know how much of a majority, but a majority of angel of death killers are nurses and are also and like a good chunk of them are also female. It was I think like even if slightly, it was more common to see female uh, angels of death than it was to see males. But there are. Yeah, but there are like three specifically that I kept seeing over and over again. So those are the three that I chose to talk about. Okay. So our first one is Jane Toppin, also known as Jolly Jane. And she was known as one of the hospital's best nurses until it was discovered that she killed at least 31 people. The so, name sounds familiar. So I'm taking you back to mid to late 1800s. Okay. Trying to see if this is sparking anything yet. So... After a rough childhood and the loss of all of her family through death, insanity, and separation, not to mention her name being changed from her Irish name, Honora, Honora Kelly, to Jane Toppin in order to separate her from her Irish heritage and working as a servant for most of her life, in 1887, at 33, she started training at Cambridge Hospital. So... She made a reputation for herself as the friendly, outgoing Jolly Jane who loved to gossip and was a little too openly happy about students that she didn't like being dismissed. She also had a habit of making outlandish lies that trace back to her childhood. So hospital administrators were concerned by her fascination about autopsies, but she also poisoned her elderly patients with powerful drugs and she managed to hide that from them somehow. So, fascination with autopsies, we're concerned. The fact that her elderly patients keep dying somehow gets slid under the rug. Don't understand it, but... I would, like, I mean, I would flip it, but that's also because I am the one in a forensic anthropology class that was, like, the most, like, it was me and another person who were enraptured in the autopsy video. And everybody else was, like, almost at the verge of having to leave the room feeling sick. Right? Like, it's, I, I honestly, I kind of thought of you when I read that line too, though. I'm not going to lie. But, like, like, being interested in autopsies alone isn't necessarily a red flag. But from the sounds of things combined, because the, her, her, the other students started kind of disliking her because of the lying, because of the, like, openly being happy about other students being dismissed just because she didn't like them. Like, there was a couple of things, but then also, like, she was a little too into the autopsies. Yeah, no, like, like, in that situation, for sure, like, that's a red flag. Yeah, again, it's like, it, it goes back to the whole, like, these things on their own aren't necessarily a red flag, but in combination with everything else, maybe a little questionable. So she later admitted to getting a sexual thrill from her victims, which is rare for female serial killers to have a sexual motive because she would be go uh, she would go so far as to crawl into bed with them and hold them while they died. 
holding someone while they die on its own could be a really sweet moment. But instead she decided to ruin it because there's no way that these people would have wanted that for themselves to like have their murderer hold them while they died. Like, I know I wouldn't, I would be fuming. I'd be, I would, I would haunt them for the rest of forever. Like, absolutely not. No, thank you. So yeah, so she, and I, I mean, she's a chronic liar as well, right? So like everything that she says, I kind of take with a grain of salt. Like she could just be saying like the shocking thing here, but there was also a story of someone who woke up after a surgery where Jane gave them a uh, a bitter medication, put them to sleep, and then she woke up to Jane crawling into bed with her, and then she was startled and left the room. Ooh. Yes. So, like, that's kind of confirmed. <laughs> and it's gross. Uh, so outside of the hospital, she also killed her landlord and his wife, allegedly because they were old. She killed a close friend in order to take her job at a diner, which she lost by being bad at it. She killed her foster sister after she confided in her about her depression and then tried to marry her husband, who said no and kicked her out. Killed another landlord's wife when she came to collect her rent and then moved in with that landlord as a nurse only to kill him and his two daughters. That's all outside of the hospital setting. Okay. <laughs> so she was a little bit of a perfectionist and... She didn't want anyone taking anything from her and she wanted what everybody else had and she was willing to kill them in order to get away with it. And her her main method was also like poisoning, like she was poisoning people. She would give them tea and then they would die and they would go from being perfectly healthy to dead. And no one noticed anything until the landlord and his daughters died. And then someone was finally like, hey, how did an entire family of healthy people all suddenly just pass away? This doesn't make sense. And then they finally exhumed the body of one of the two daughters and started in and realized that it was poison and started investigating. It took that. So don't have pies and don't drink tea with them. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. Okay. That is all the right. takeaway for this episode. <laughs> the moral. Stop eating pie. Stop drinking tea. And milkshakes. I don't think we can do that. And milkshakes. Oh my god. Yeah, and milkshakes. Yeah, so that was finally the start of her downfall as she couldn't cover it up as easily as she could in the hospital since it was an entire healthy family dying at the same time. How is that not suspicious? So uh, she later claimed that she started killing at age 16 after a boy dumped her and that she wouldn't have killed all those people if she had been too busy being a wife and a mother. Yes, because that's so going to stop you. Yeah, right? Those If she had any kids ever, they were going to be abused. Like, she is not a stable person. She does not value human life. No. Uh, and also, keep in mind, she was a chronic liar, so we don't really know if she was killing that young already, but we know she at least started in 1887 and wasn't caught until 1901. Well, she was good at so hiding it, I guess somehow because she killed an entire healthy family and thought that would work so <laughs> i don't know i don't know dude i don't know that's, just, that's the thing with every serial killer though every serial killer is a freaking perfect serial killer until they get caught because then they made that yeah. one mistake well either that or they're an idiot that got lucky the entire time like i'm not convinced of either either way <laughs> yeah all right, so in 1902, after an eight-hour trial and 27 minutes of jury deliberation, they found her not guilty by reason of insanity, and she spent the rest of her life in an asylum. Okay. 
Okay. <laughs> I can be satisfied with that. She's away from people and she has no power to murder people. I can be satisfied with that. Yeah. No, like, definitely. See, I wish that we had a guilty by insanity. Yeah. <laughs> it's not that you're guilty, not because guilty. Because you're insane. Yeah. Because, like, she did this for, like, decades. Like, I have a, like, not knowing that what she was doing is wrong is, like, I think why, but, like, I don't know. I don't know. I just, I don't know. I don't know. It's kind I of like um, the guy who was um, stabbed Shelman Rushhide. He was pleading not guilty to it, even though they literally grabbed him and were pulling him off as he was continuing to try to stab this guy, the guy on a stage. Dude, you're freaking guilty. We all know it. Like, you were literally we pulled off you. of him. Mm. And everybody's like, well, no, because he'd be then not guilty by insanity. I'm like, yes, he was insane. That's clear. But he's still guilty. Like, we need yeah. to change some of our terminology in the criminal system it's an interesting it's an it's an interesting phrase it's an interesting thing and i know it has to do with whether or not they're like mentally present enough to be in control of their actions or they're mentally aware of like what they're doing but they're Um, still guilty of committing the crime yes they're insane yes they may not but they've still committed the crime they're still responsible for the crime but if they literally did not have control over what their body was doing at the time, I can understand it for cases like that. In this case, I think that she's just sadistic. Yeah. I don't, like, I have a hard time buying that she was not actually in control of herself. I have a hard time buying that she these were not deliberate choices that she was making for her own gain. I don't, like, in this case. But also, it's 1902. Well, Yeah. And she's a woman serial killer. And society would not have had an easy time wrapping their head around that concept. No, we still don't. We still don't. So, like, I kind of understand and I kind of am like, okay. But, like, she's killed so many people in a hospital setting. Maybe we don't leave her in a hospital setting. I don't, like, I, I have questions about that. All right. So, our next brief story is Harold Shipman, uh, who was later known as Dr. Death. He was born in Nottingham, England in 1946, so a little bit later in the timeline. In 1970, he received his medical degree and began his practice a few years later. In 1975, he got caught forging prescriptions for pethidine, which was an opiate, which led to him being forced into rehab for his addiction to the drug. In 1977, he started working as a general practitioner again, and his practice was successful until 1998 when a woman died shortly after Shipman visited her. It was suspicious because she had been healthy. The death was sudden and unexpected, and her will had been adjusted to give Shipman her entire estate. I'm sorry. Yeah. But that's super sus. I don't say. If you're going to do, if you're going to kill, please kill smartly. Mm-hmm. Don't mm-hmm. literally just, just randomly <laughs> change somebody's entire will to give it all to yourself. With you, you don't have any sort of thing other than the fact that you're just randomly their doctor and then you kill them. <laughs> I don't remember the exact numbers because I couldn't be bothered to do the math to account for inflation, but it was a lot. It was it was a big estate as well. So not she smart. Was, <laughs> she was a wealthy woman. Okay, but also hang on. You say that. You say that. But hang on to that for a second here. So this, uh, it was, yeah, so it was suspicious, will have been adjusted. 
Shipman had also signed her death certificate himself and noted that no autopsy was necessary in order to cover up what he did. Yeah, dude's literally writing his own confession. Yes. <laughs> with yes, his act. <laughs> yes, yeah. Mm-hmm. So here's the thing. This is the most obvious, like, case, right? Like, this is the most obvious. This is the most clear. Like, uh, duh, this guy is doing all these shady things, obviously. He's already gotten in trouble for forgery before. Yeah. Obviously, it's Obviously, it's him. So... But this leads to an investigation, and he was—he ended up being convicted of 15 counts of murder and one of forgery. This was the only victim that he forged the will for in order to get the money from. Like, this is the only victim that he changed the estate for. He had done this to 15 other people without getting caught. We will never know their stories. So, but hang on, it gets worse. First, it gets a little bit better. He spent the rest of his life in prison until he killed his last victim himself by hanging. After he died, in 2005, a government inquiry was ordered to find out how many people he really did murder. They found, wait for it, 250 cases from 1971 to 1998. If I remember correctly, Mm -hmm. I might have actually read a book about him. Really? Is he the one that literally worked in Canada, the U.S., and England? I don't recall him working in Canada. Because there's a doctor death that that literally worked in three different countries. I'm looking it up. I'm looking up. Including here in Canada and killed in all three countries. Studied medicine, University of Leeds, Yorkshire, Manchester... I don't think so. Keep in hide. Yeah. No, I think this may be someone different. I think he stayed in hide throughout his whole life. There's no mention of him coming to Canada from what I can see quickly here. Might be a different Dr. Death. Yeah, that may be a different Dr. Death. My source didn't mention Canada and his wiki doesn't either. So, yeah, even the prison that he went to was in England, so... Yeah, I think his whole life was basically in a small town just outside of Manchester. Okay, because there is one that I read a book on, and he literally was going from, like, three different countries as a doctor. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he might have actually killed, like, mainly killed women while doing, like, abortions and stuff like that. It looks like a lot of his victims were women, but I don't think, yeah. According to his Wikipedia page, a lot of his victims that they did, like, at least put him into, like, on trial for, were women. Oh, yeah, they were all, all 15 of them were women. Hang on. Yeah, but nothing's mentioned about abortions. So, yeah, I think that one's a different person. Yeah, there's multiple doctor deaths, if I remember correctly. Oh, there's so many. <laughs> there's so many. There's so many angel of deaths. There's so many doctor deaths. They get given the same title because it's, like, very similar stories. Yeah. Just the numbers change um, and the motive a bit. All right. So anyway, yeah. So he got away with like 250 cases. Uh, some think that he was running a sort of underground euthanasia service. Some said that he was trying to remove the older patients so they wouldn't, quote, burden the healthcare system. Some say it was the pleasure, the power, the high. The only financial gain found in connection to his case was the one forged will. 
So that seems to be circumstantial in that one case rather than a motive for the majority of his crimes. The majority of his victims were healthy before they died and no one really knows how he got away with it so many times and for so long. Well, yeah, especially if they were healthy beforehand. You'd think, like, I understand how you can get away with it with people who are already pretty much dying. Yeah. But when they're already, like, when they're healthy and then they're just, like, gone suddenly, only... it's like, how do you not start yeah. looking at the one correlating <laughs> person? Uh, I laugh because it hurts. Yeah, I mean, yeah, like, that's really it. Like, especially if the only commonality that there seems to be is that his victims were older is like okay just because you're old like sometimes it happens right where an older person will just like kind of suddenly will lose them yeah um but that but that many times but that many times i don't think so i like under one doctor i don't think so honey no all right so my last little short story here is about donald harvey and he pleaded guilty to murdering 37 people and claimed responsibility for close to 90 deaths during his trial in the late 80s. He started killing in the 70s after a childhood of abuse left him feeling powerless. He claimed some of his murders were mercy killings, but the main motivation for his murder was clearly power and control. Outside of the hospital, he also poisoned his friend, his ex, his neighbor, and his father, killing them and poisoned his partner, keeping him too sick to leave their apartment, all the while still killing people at two different hospitals. Control. Major control issues. So many control issues. So he got away with it from 1970 to 1987, when an autopsy revealed that a patient had died from poisoning rather than his motorcycle injuries. Not remotely related. No, I'm like... Yep. What's uh, again? Not and... the smartest. You'd think that is trained medical professionals where you need to have a brain mm -hmm. that they would be smarter at this shit. In this case, if I remember right, he had poisoned him with insulin as well and a man that did not have diabetes or any like, need for insulin and was in the hospital in a motor after a motorcycle accident. Oh my god. I don't know. <laughs> he needs to go I... see the wizard. <laughs> it's like... It's, like, the most obvious, like, it's, oh. yeah, but I guess he thought that he'd get away with it because they would just assume that he died of his motorcycle accident and they wouldn't look into it. But, like, I don't know that that's a safe assumption to make, my guy. Like, well, no. But he claimed he flew under the radar because of a serious shortage of doctors. The regular doctors would all be too busy and overworked to notice the inconsistencies. He was convicted of 37 murders and spent the rest of his life in jail until he was beaten to death by other prisoners at age 64 in 2017. Uh, yeah, and there are so many more. Because this type of serial killer is more rare, they get sensationalized a lot more. So if you're interested in the whole story for any of these or more examples, they're very easy to find. Just, you know, it's heavy stuff. The victims are especially vulnerable, and some are children, so just take care of yourself mentally, too, if you do dig into it, like we talked about before. Yeah, like, I I know a few of the stories I read got me heated, and I listen to true crime fairly regularly, so just, you know, keep it balanced. Like, and there's, like, details. Like, so many of these stories, like I said, because, because they're so rare, like, the articles that are about them go into detail, and they will, like, tell you everything about these killers and about these like victims and just like the whole story because it's such a headline angel of death kills 250 people like you know like it, it's it's a very easy thing to sensationalize well i think that's like 
the same with most serial killers because of how many people get killed and people going like, well, is it, are we in danger of all these things, right? Then so the media is like, oh, people are going to read this. Exactly. We'll tell you everything you want to know. Exactly. Even though you are more likely to get killed by somebody who you do know than you are Personally. to be killed by a stranger. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. So keep your enemies close and your friends closer. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, and it's it's totally true. So, like serial killers in general get sensationalized, but have a, but to have a rare kind of serial killer, I feel like amplifies that even more so. So yeah, it's just yeah, lots of information out there if you're looking for it. But yeah, like it, it it's just when you when you go looking for it and you realize how much information there is about like specific stories like this, you've got to remember the numbers. This is rare. This is rare. This is not likely. This is not likely to happen to you. This is not likely to happen to your loved ones. So, like, it can get overwhelming to see this person and this person and this person and see them all listed individually and everything, right? But, like, this is, like, it, it, seeing all these individual cases in detail is honestly just evidence of how, like, infrequently it does happen. Yeah. Because we have the time to go into these cases into detail. Yeah, exactly. So, just, yeah, don't overwhelm yourself if you're going to go looking it up. Take care of yourself. Balance and all things. Yeah. And on that light and happy note, that's where we're ending the episode. <laughs> and next week, we are going to go into lighter, happier stuff as we do a music episode to balance yes. out all of the darkness. <laughs> all of the trauma. Of deaths and disappearances and... Yeah. There are some sad points. We'll say what we're talking about. We can list it. We're pretty confident in these choices, right? Yes. I'm very confident okay. in our choices. Considering that you're so, super excited about yours. I am, I am. I So Ashley is talking about Woodstock, and I'm talking about the famous composer Mozart. So, yeah, it should be lighter, happier. There may be some sad points, but generally it'll be a much happier theme. We'll lighten it up for you guys. Uh, so, yeah, stay tuned for that. Yeah, we'll go into some music festivals and famous composers that everybody knows. Yeah. Well, everyone knows of, but do you know much about Mozart? We'll find out next week. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. 
The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. I really hope that you found something new and will check out the resources in the show notes to get more information. In the meantime, I would really appreciate it if you could rate and review on your favorite podcast platform so more history nerds can find me. Don't forget to check out our Instagram page at WDYKA Podcast, as well as considering helping me out with a donation or membership on Buy Me a Coffee. The link is in the show notes and on our IG link tree. Thanks so much, and see you next time on the lesser known side of history. <laughs>